Good morning. I feel like I want to start briefly by addressing Nashville, but I'm not sure I can do it without crying because <clears throat> my wife and I have a lot of connections there, um, and it's been a long week. So the sermon's not going to be about it, but I felt like at the beginning just saying a few things and pointing to things that I think should bring us hope. I'm going to steal a little bit from um, uh, that. The, if you got Mark Middlecoff's email from Scott Sauls, who's a PCA pastor in Nashville, is a really powerful message that he said, and I'd like to share just a little bit of it with you, and then a thought I have, and then we'll move into the, the sermon I have prepared for this week. Um, you know what? What Scott Sauls wrote about um, in John 11, he spoke about. He spoke about when Lazarus was dead in the tomb and Jesus comes and Mary comes out to Jesus and says, Lord, if you had not been here, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And it's a statement of where, where were you when this happened? Uh, we trust you. We depend on you. We know you have power. Where were you? Why did you let this happen? What's amazing about that is that it's very similar to what Jesus ultimately says on the cross. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the absence and the terror and the sadness that many people are experiencing today in Nashville and around the country as they go to church and reflect on these things Christ stepped into that pain also and cried out that cry that many people are crying this morning. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he said that, he experienced that so that ultimately we are with him. Because what happens next in that moment when Mary comes out to Jesus is he weeps and resurrects Lazarus. Uh, it can feel like Christianity is kind of trite, like hopeful. Yeah, there's a resurrection. But that resurrection comes at terrible cost for Jesus. The cost he experiences on the cross. He takes the full absence of God that we experience, that pain we experience on himself, so that one day we never will have to. And so there are a lot of people meeting in Nashville right now who are weeping, and Jesus weeps with them, and they look forward to a sure resurrection. That's the Christian hope. So we mourn not like those without hope because we have that resurrection hope. And we know that when we mourn, we have a brother who mourns with us in Christ. So that's good news in the midst of terrible news. All right. So today, um, what I want to talk about is I want to talk about the Beatitudes. And uh, if you can flip with me to Matthew 4. If you can flip with me to Matthew 4, 23, 
in some ways, it's a perfect passage for our experience because when Jesus gives the Beatitudes, when he speaks the Sermon on the Mount, he's not speaking it to people kind of luxuriating in luxury. He's speaking to people intimately associated with tragedy and grief who know the ways of the world and how things work, who know what it means to be hungry, who know what it means to be in want, who know what it means to experience suffering. Jesus' own life is marked by suffering in many ways. And so when he says these things, they are not disconnected from us and who we are. They, they have deep weight. So let's look at today, uh, <laughs> humorously, I told you last time, like, oh, yeah, I'll take four Beatitudes at once. Now I'm all the way down to one. I'm just going to do one Beatitude today. Uh, so <laughs> we're going to be focusing on blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. But I'd like to, every time we go to the Beatitudes, read it in its entirety. So let's look, starting at Matthew chapter 4. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray together that God would bless the word. Father, I feel like we could just say amen and leave. Uh, your sermon on the mount is powerful and true and rings true today. Soften our hearts that we may hear. May we hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this doing one verse is going to, normally I like to take a big thing, a passage, and really dive down. Doing one verse means I'm going to have to do a lot of kind of painting pictures, I think, of what blessed are the meek looks like. So I'm going to take us on a little tour so, through some things, so you're going to have to hang with me. But some of you may have uh, seen a play. There's a famous play called Glengarry Glen Ross. It's a David Mamet play. It's a group about these real estate salesmen. They're typical real estate salesmen who, uh, in an office setting, they get along well, they have their troubles, but they're generally friends. At the beginning of the film, though, the firm sends in, like, their hatchet man who comes to lay down the law on how things are going to go. Uh, I'm going to read it for you. It is heavily censored and uh, very paraphrased. <laughs> 
but it summarizes so well, I think, um, kind of the, the anti-meekness vibe. Uh, well, so this guy comes in. There are a couple of salesmen there, and he says, let me have your attention for a moment. So you're talking about what? You're talking about, about that sale you missed or some fool that doesn't want to buy or somebody that doesn't want what you're selling or some woman you're into and so forth. Let's talk about something important. I'm here from Mitch and Murray, and I'm, I'm here on a mission of mercy. You got leads. Mitch and Murray pay good money. Get their names to sell them. You can't close the leads you've given. You can't close nothing. You are nothing. Hit the bricks and beat it because you're going out. At this point, uh, a brave salesman chips up. Well, the leads are really weak. The leads are weak. The leads are weak. You're weak. I've been in this business 15 years. Someone else. Hey, what's your name? Forget you. That's my name. You know why? Because you drove a Hyundai to get here, and I drove a BMW. That's my name. Only one thing counts in this life. Get them to sign on the line, which is dotted. You hear me? They're sitting out there waiting to give you their money. Are you man enough to take it? Finally, one other person is like, okay, look, you're such a hero. You're so rich. Why are you coming down here and wasting your time on a bunch of bums like us? The guy sits down, takes his watch off. He says, see this watch? Yeah. That watch costs more than your car. I made $970,000 last year. How much you make? You see, pal? That's who I am. And you're nothing. Nice guy? I don't care. Good father? Forget you. Go home. Play with your kids. You want to work here? Close. If not, you're shining my shoes. It's a really memorable scene, on top of being kind of humorous, I think, because I think it, it, it lays bare uh, just like what we maybe are afraid is true and what sometimes we think is true. That meekness, humility, all that stuff, that's a luxury. That's something you, you put, you know, that's a cherry on top. But when it comes down to it, when it comes down to brass tacks, like, you just got to earn it. You got to get out there and make yourself valuable or you're nothing. Uh, and I, I remember kind of, you know, growing up, the big debate about, I was thinking about meekness and humility. I feel like the biggest debate I heard constantly was about how to celebrate after scoring a touchdown in the end zone. That was like where humility showed up, you know? <laughs> Uh, when I was growing up, like, uh, you know, people would celebrate in really extravagant ways. Like, no, no, they should be like Barry Sanders and just hand the football off. This is a hilarious debate because it's a even when it's a debate about humility versus fame, we're still arguing about behavior after scoring a touchdown on national television, you know? It's kind of where the American conversation on humility is at. Or as Napoleon Bonaparte put it, and I think we'd agree, a lot of us, glory is fleeting, but obscurity lasts forever. <laughs> but Christ says something to us today that is provocative, as provocative today as it was then. He says, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. All right, I want to look at two ways this is possible. Uh, I want to look at how true meekness leads to a true view of ourselves and true meekness leads to a true view of others. So let's start by true meekness means a true view of ourselves. Uh, let's think about our speaker here. So this is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is in front of everyone. 
He is relentlessly focused on pointing people towards God. He trusts long processes. He disrupts people and then is willing to walk away, like knowing that they need to work things out. He, he doesn't rush things. He makes deep relationships. He shows love to people who are often ignored. And in telling this crowd, blessed are the meek, he's trying to summon forth meekness. To call people towards this meekness, Jesus actually can be really dangerous. And here's why. I think all of us have our kind of on paper, resume, public persona. And Jesus just tears that thing up. He is relentless about this. And give me a second to prove this. I've noticed something as a teacher, and uh, if you have worked with children extensively, you know, probably adults too, you may have noticed this. Whenever you confront a student or a kid or a child on something they've, they've blown, I always try to give them uh, a second chance. Because the first instinct when you say, did you do this? They're like, no. The first instinct is always to lie. And you have to go, stop for a second, consider the situation, slow down, count to five, then answer my question. Did you do this? And maybe then, yeah, yeah, I did that. Uh, I had a hilarious conversation with a student. I showed them a paper. They had clearly plagiarized all the evidence. I'm like, so you, what happened here? He's like, I don't know, I don't know. I'm like, all right, let's start over and pretend I'm not stupid. Uh, okay, yeah, I plagiarized. All right, thanks, good. Why are we like this? Why are we so instinctively uh, defensive in that way? Well, I think the answer is that we are self-justification machines. We have a PhD in self-defense. When we stop and take an honest look inside at ourselves, even then you can hear that machine just running. We can't think about ourselves without quickly crafting self-defense narratives on things that we feel weak on, even when it doesn't really matter, even when it's simple things. I think about uh, when I was in college, my roommate was like, Andrew, you seem like you would be a clean guy, but you're really messy. This seems like, all right, I'm a freshman in college. This seems like a low stakes thing. It's just a true observation he made. I should at that point be able to go, <laughs> yeah, you know, totally. I'm really messy. But it really bothered me, right? He had put his finger on something true about me that I didn't want to be true. And you can immediately go through, and I just started jotting down, like, where, where's our, how does our self-defense machine work? You can go through context. Well, I'm messy because I have a lot of homework. I barely sleep, you know? Balancing act. Well, I'm messy, but look how much I do for the people around me. So it balances out. Someone else. My parents never taught me how to clean up my room. My roommate needs the room to be quiet so I can clean, so I can't clean, actually. Uh, you can lower the value of the thing, you know? Who cares about clean rooms anyway? That's just a cultural stigma, yada, yada. I'm sticking it to the man. That's been one of my favorites. Uh, you can do the comparison game in both directions. Well, I'm not as messy as so-and-so. And in your heart, thank God for so-and-so, you know? Uh, or, well, look, I may be messy, but look how neurotic and perfectionist so-and-so is with their room. They're insane. At least I'm not like that. You could also focus on the delivery. You said a true thing, but I hated the way you said it. And uh, we're going to talk about that instead. <laughs> or finally, the big bomb, the self-pity one. I can't clean my room. I'm such a failure. I guess I'm worthless, right? <laughs> OK, 
all of those, I hope those laughters are not uh, just laughing at me, but that we all share in some of those and have done those. I trust that's true. All those things, I mean, how many, count how many times you do that today. It's probably through the roof. We are self-justification, self-defense machines. Henrik Ibsen once said, and this is a paraphrase, he said, take away a person's saving lie and you take away their happiness as well. I want to say that these self-defenses, these self-justifications, they are our saving lies. There are ways to avoid looking at the true thing, you know. Uh, what I need to look at is, I'm a messy person. Sometimes I'm not a dependable friend, or, you know, maybe you, you have to admit, be honest to yourself and be like, I don't think people's names are safe when I talk about them. Sometimes I find that I'm, I'm kind of hateful or envious. You try and stand on one of these truths for just like a minute, and you can watch yourself writhe and squirm for that justification, self-defense. It's hard to let it wash over and feel the terror of that place. But here's the thing. An invitation to Jesus is not an invitation just to like become morally awesome. It's an invitation to destroy the saving lie, stare at the truth, and rest in Christ. And before you think I'm starting to like over-psychologize the Bible, hang with me a minute. I want to just quickly run through a couple of stories. So let's think about Peter. Peter really needs to believe that he's a dependable, loyal, faithful guy who will never back down. And he tells Jesus, I'll never, I'll never back off. I'll never fail you. I'll never abandon you. And Jesus says, I tell you, before the roaster crows, you will deny me three times. The rich young ruler believes he's following all the commandments to get to God and that he loves God. And there's Jesus, the son of God, who stands before him and says, sell all that you have and follow me. Nicodemus, the religious teacher, believes he's wise spiritual authority and needs it to believe it so strongly he won't even ask Jesus questions during the day. He has to schedule like a nighttime meeting when no one's around. And Jesus says, are you really a religious teacher and you don't know this stuff? Martha believes that her hospitality is a reflection of God's love. And Jesus points out, hey, the people sitting and listening to my teaching are actually doing the right thing right now. When Jesus even comes riding in on a donkey on Palm Sunday, as we read, he's doing the same thing. He's confronting those saving lies. There's an entire community just ready for Jesus to come in on a war horse, which would mean I'm ready to go to war against the Romans. I'm going to be the guy. And he comes riding in humbly on this donkey, a symbol of peace. You think you need a military champion? You need someone to make peace between you and God. Jesus relentlessly, just try it. Read through the scriptures and watch him. He relentlessly goes for that place, the saving lie. And the thing about saving lies is it's this place where we say, this has to be true about me so I have value. This has to be true about me so I have value. And I bet if we took five minutes and you just started journaling, we could get really quickly where, what those things are. Because they're the places when, if your saving lie is, I'm super dependable, and you drop the ball, you panic in a way that's uncharacteristic. You react really strongly. You're like, whoa, what's going on? 
We all have these things that we desperately want to be true about ourselves because we think they give us value. But the truth is, and what Jesus comes and says, the truth says this has to be true about him for us to have value. This has to be true about God. This has to be true about Christ for us to have value. Can you feel the shift there? And because that's true, Jesus relentlessly guns after the saving lies. And facing those things would be terrifying unless it's done by a loving, faithful king, who's what Jesus is. And when you come to those truly tough parts about yourself, well, I guess I'm not, maybe I am not dependable or I'm not these things. The places that are just kind of ugly and all the saving lies are gone and you just have to face it. Jesus is with you. And he tells you, I paid for that. And when you say, what was that like? He says, it was like hell and it was worth it. That's who Jesus is. And when our saving lives are destroyed, we're left in that place we spoke about last time with the poor in spirit. We have nothing, we need everything, and we only receive it as a gift. And if we're left there, we have nothing left but to be meek. We have nothing to brag about. We have nothing to hide. We have nothing to respond defensively to. Our value is in Christ alone. And that's a beautiful thing, and that's good news, and you can rest in that. So I think a meek community, I think if we're dominated by saving lies, we'll be driven by anxiety, entitlement, which is a weird combination, insecurity and entitlement. But a meek community, the one Jesus is trying to call forth in this passage, a meek community, I think, will be defined by kind of open-handed gratitude instead of tight-fisted entitlement. And I think that open-handed gratitude can lead to a community of real, actual joy. I tell my students uh, all the time as I watch them that so much of, and maybe I've said this here before, but so much of their life has this extrinsic staple on it. Do this thing so that it shows up on a resume. Be good at this sport so that it shows up here. Be good at here because it... And what's beautiful, I think, about what Jesus is offering us is the ability to just enjoy things for their own sake, you know? What if having somebody over and being hospitable to them was not a big test of who you are, but just a chance to be hospitable to somebody you loved? What if going axe throwing is not a chance to show how manly you are, but just a fun time to throw axes? Hopefully relatively accurately. (laughs) I have concerns. But you get, (laughs) it's going to be fun, you should go. Uh, (laughs) But I hope you hear what I'm saying. And I hope, I hope, I know it, I hope this is demonstrated kind of the passage at large. Jesus relentlessly tears down those saving lies so that we can make that turn where we're no longer depending on ourselves, but depending on him. And once you do that, and once you're free of those things, then you you can be meek. We, We don't have things to defend. We can rest in him. We can enjoy the good things he has for us. So that's the first thing, is I think this meekness offers us to have a true view of ourselves. Scary, but good, because you have a good Savior who goes with you in it. Well, it also, and here's the turn, gives us a true view of others. 
It allows us to see other people well. If it's true that Christ has dealt with all my saving lies, continues to deal with them all, that he's guiding me to further dependence on God, and that this God is the fount of all life, and how does this affect my relationship with the people around me? Just have a few things on this. The first one is that a community defined by meekness, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. They have no one above them and no one below them either. First, they have no one above them. No one has anything that you have not been given or promised by Christ. D.A. Carson's definition of meekness is a controlled desire to see others' interests advance ahead of your own. You can do this when you recognize that Christ has given you everything and you don't need anything more. Jesus tells this story in Luke 14. I told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose places of honor. Uh, he's at a, at a party and people are trying to sit closer to the head of the table so they look more important. None of us would ever do anything like that. Uh, and he says, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor lest someone more distinguished than you will be invited by him. And he who invited you will come and say to you, uh, give your place to this person. And then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place. So when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. And you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Christians can take the lesser seat because we have a seat at the king's table. We don't need any other seat. We're promised at the end of this whole deal, if we are in Christ, that he will serve us. That's why we do communion every week, except this one. That's why we do communion every week. <laughs> That's why we do communion every week. It is, a, it is a rehearsal and a practice for the day when we are served by our Lord Jesus at his table. We have seats of honor at his table. We don't need the other seats. And because of this, Jesus is, we are, unintimidated by power, and unashamed by lowliness. There's nothing power has to threaten us with. Jesus has given us everything. Lost reputation, you have the full esteem of God. Your life, it's promised a resurrection. God gives us everything. And then the other thing that this does in our communities is I think if our saving lives are gone, if we are meek, if we're unintimidated by power, then people are no longer threats, but there's something to be enjoyed and someone to be served. I think a lot of us move through and people and social interactions are just opportunities to succeed or fail. This is just another chance for me to prove my worth or not prove my worth. What if that's off the table? And you can just see the person created by God in front of you. If you're saving lies that you're well-liked and well-respected, then every critique can hit to the core. But if you don't have that at stake every time, you can love the person in front of you. This also means that there's no offer that you have to bow down before. You see how the beatitude ends? It says, you shall inherit the earth. It may look like the Glengarry Glen Ross method, is working, you know? 
Get out there, prove yourself. But Christ promises us that it won't in the end. We're in an upside-down kingdom. Napoleon is wrong. We uh, do not perish in forever obscurity. We, we go to forever glory with our king. Rebecca DeYoung points this out, and this is worth saying. This doesn't mean we occasionally get and enjoy praise. We don't occasionally get praise from others, but it means that when we experience praise, we experience it as a foretaste of God's, or as God communicating approval to us through another. We don't make human praise or critique the ultimate end. So no one's above us, but no one is below us either. Jesus is unashamed of lowliness. You watch him through this whole thing. I mean, he just sees no distinction between anyone. It shocks the disciples over and over again. I was talking to my students about this recently, too. Do you have friends or family that you do not mind visiting, but you kind of hope they won't visit you? <laughs> Think about it for a second. You don't mind visiting them, but you would not like them to surprise you at work. Jesus doesn't have that connection with anybody. There is no one that does not get Jesus' full attention. There is no one Jesus is ashamed of. He is fully locked in. And because he's that way, the church shouldn't be either. The meek community, there's no one above and there's no one below. Can you imagine a community that functions this way? That takes each person seriously as an image bearer, who's not intimidated and also not ashamed. The church has misused this passage a lot throughout history. It's part of why I spent all week wrestling with this because of this. Because the blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, can be, feel trite. It's been used to uphold some bad patterns. And as I've looked kind of at the past and how it's been used poorly, I noticed that in general, the when it's used poorly, it goes like this. It usually comes when somebody who is in a powerful or comfortable position looks at someone struggling in the pit and says, sorry down there, Jesus says be meek, so this is really good for you. And I want you to note first, this is not what Jesus does. Jesus is not up there saying, hey, you believe the wrong things, you should work that out. He's in the pit. He's with them, preaching. He's going to go to the cross and experience everything that we experience Listen to what the book of Hebrews tells us about Jesus. Some of this may make you uncomfortable because it humanizes him so much, but I'm just going to read straight scripture. Just hear what Hebrews has to say about Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need or somewhere else. Jesus can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Or later, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. This is our brother and Lord Jesus, who is there preaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He's not yelling down into the pit. He's down there 
They are walking shoulder to shoulder, covered in mud, and he's saying, blessed are the meek. You know what's the secret? We inherit the earth. Jesus is in the pit with his audience. Life is not simple in the pit. Many of you would feel like you're there now. They're not always simple answers. Whether by sin or suffering, wandering down there is tough. I think one of the, uh, as I think about a community of meekness, one of the difficulties about uh, a church kind of, the PCA church or a church in, like ours, this little more theologically conservative, is we can have a really high regard for holiness, a really high regard for integrity, but we miss this compassion piece, the walking side by side. It's a long haul. It's a scary place down there. That's why Jesus goes. And we should go as well. I've spoken to some people who, and I've said this before, think that there's kind of this balance. There's like conviction over here and compassion over here. And the more conviction I experience, the more strongly I feel about God's truth, the less compassion I have. Or the more compassion I have, the less strongly I have these convictions. Jesus, they, they blend together. He is the most highly convicted, highly compassionate person. His high conviction leads to high compassion, which leads to high conviction, which leads to high compassion. When Jesus meets with the woman at the well, he meets with her because he is deeply compassionate about her situation. And when he challenges her and points on the saving lie, it's because of his conviction that the best thing for her is following him. Watch him do this as you read through the Gospels. Conviction, compassion. What I think a community of meekness that lives this out, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. There is no confession that surprises us. There is no challenge. And we would be a community willing to get in the pit with other people, even through long difficulty. Some of you have had some things that you feel like there are certain struggles or sins that other people can talk about in church, and I can't talk about mine because I don't feel like people would hear me. And if that's you... I am sorry that you have had that experience because it is not representative of Christ and who he is. And the challenge for all of us in the pews, I think, is, and me as well, is to follow the Jesus who gets in the pit to be a community of meekness. It's a long road. It's going to work out a lot of difficult things. There's some of you, you have children who are struggling with things that you feel like if you said it, people would judge you or look down upon you instead of getting into the pit. That's not the call of the blessing the community of meekness. We follow after Christ, who's our companion, who walks with us through long and arduous and difficult things. We're invited to do the same. And it ends with what Jesus tells us, right? We shall inherit the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth. So, in the end, I think Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross is wrong. And thank God, because I don't want to listen to that guy talk very much. I said at the beginning that it's hard to believe, like this is a principle, that meekness is just kind of something tacked on. That meekness is like something Jesus performed. That truly God's not meek, but, but what the scriptures have to tell us is that this action of Christ's, him coming to be with us and walk in the pit, is not some abnormality of God's character. It is his character. That's who he is. 
He's the one who comes alongside us. He's the meek brother who journeys with us, who takes us all seriously. That's a freeing, joyous, challenging thing. And I think it's really good news for all of us. Let's pray together. Father, you are good. You call us to meekness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Father, we can be a radical community in this way. We could be a place that, that talks about the difficult things we're in, that walks with each other in turn through difficult things with our, our eyes and our gaze pointed towards your kingdom coming. We thank you, Father, that we have not just a model of this in Christ, but that this meekness accomplished something that it means that I don't have to trust saving lies anymore. My value is not locked in myself. It is not dependent on my day. My value is firmly locked in your faithfulness. Father, there are a lot of people in this room who haven't felt that in a long time. I ask that they would feel it today or this week, that they would feel your goodness, that they would feel that their value is safe with you. Thank you, brother and Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.